Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. While we like to rest in the grace of God, there are times when Jesus has to bring correction and even rebuke. But thankfully, with the correction comes instruction on how to return to right relationship. We'll explore this today as Pastor Phil shares on Jesus' letter to the Laodiceans. And then finally Jesus says, And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And again, Laodicea was famous for this eye salve they have developed. They had helped many to see physically, but didn't realize they themselves were blind spiritually. Again, this is the modern church. church that is blinded with spiritual needs and content with beautiful buildings and all the material things money can buy. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. We have never known a time in our nation's history where we have seen more megachurches than we see today in America. And I also think we have never seen a time in our nation's history we have seen more spiritual lethargy, carnality, and confusion than we see today in the church. And yet, because churches are so wealthy and have these incredible facilities, many have been deceived into thinking this is the greatest period of the church's history in America. Man, if that's what you're thinking, I I don't know what to say. I mean, this is not the greatest period of the church's existence in America. The church is in trouble. The church has moved from on fire and committed to the Lord to apostate for the most part. That's what we're talking about. This letter symbolizes the last day's church. It's not just in America. Look at Europe. The church is dead as a doornail in Europe. There might be pockets of true believers. As I told you a few weeks ago, the big thing is that Muslims are buying up all the Christian churches and turning them into mosques mosques in Europe because nobody's going there anymore. Nobody attends these churches. So it's all over the world, really, where Christendom used to have a foothold. We're seeing all over the place churches that are... You know, they used to have uh, congregations of, you know, three and four and five thousand. Now there's 20 people, you know, scattered throughout the church on a Sunday morning. These churches are dead. They're dead. And Jesus said, look, you need to realize you're blind. You're blind. You need to you need to 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 seek me for true eyes to have that you might see. Well, of course, this church was very much like the scribes and Pharisees who Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 14. He told his disciples, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Uh, How many churches, that is the, the testimony. You have pastors who are blind, unsaved, leading a church of blind and unsaved people and thinking they're really right with God. I was in one in the city last winter and visited there. And looked at some of the literature in the pews, how that they were a progressive church. That's a euphemism for a liberal church. We're a progressive church. We embrace things that a lot of churches would not embrace. That's not a good thing. You, you think that's so cool. You think that's so, you know, politically correct, tolerant. That indicates where you are spiritually. 
You think you're rich. This was a very wealthy church in the city. A lot of history. Very old. Over 100 years old. One time, no doubt, housed a very right-on congregation. But long since has died. Long since has died. But Jesus told the Pharisees and scribes they were like blind guides. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. How easy it is for the devil to blind religious people to their true spiritual condition. Because they already think they're right with God. I'm a churchgoer, you know. I'm involved in ministry. And so they think that because they attend church, they're right with God. Somebody has said, you know, going into a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a car. You know, I think it drives the point home. A lot of people think because I go to church, I'm right with God. I'm a Christian. Not necessarily. The Laodiceans were not Christians, although they thought they were. Well, then in verse 19, Jesus continues, really, with the prescription for their cure. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord still loved this church? He still loved this church. Even though they were apostate, even though they were liberal, he loved that church back then, and he still loves all these churches today. Because our Lord and Savior is very compassionate, very loving. And he's always wanting to get people to come into a right relationship with him. And so he was, even at this stage, he was saying, I love you. I love you. What do you need to do? Repent. Look, guys, I've already told you this before. Some people are relying on the fact that God is love to keep them out of hell. You talk to them, oh, look, God is love. God is love. He won't send me to hell. Unless you're like the worst sinner. I mean, unless, you know, you're like Saddam Hussein, I guess, or somebody like that, they think pretty much everybody's going to heaven. Why? Because God is love. Look, God's love can't save you. God's love won't save you. God's love has never saved anybody. All God's love can do is provide a way by which you might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's God's part. That's his love and operation. Now, because God so loved the entire world and gave his son to die for the sins of the whole world, does that mean the whole world is going to heaven? Of course not. What's the next part? That whoever what? Believes on him might have everlasting life. Might not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. See, Jesus said, I love you guys. You're messed up, but I love you. But my love can't save you. I've got my hand out to you. You know what you got to do? you got to turn around and reach out with your hand and take mine. That's called repentance and faith. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I love you. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Turn around. You're not moving toward me. You guys are moving away from me. Repent. Turn around. Come to me because I love you and I want to save you guys. I want to bless your church. I can't do it right now, but I want you to repent. The word zealous there in the Greek is a word that means to be hot, 
to be hot. This, look at this, is his last message to the church. Think about this. These are Jesus' final words to his church. He says, I want you to be zealous, to be hot. Be zealous. Be, get on fire for God. He is ordering this church to forsake its lukewarmness and to repent and get on fire for God. Let me just read you what J. Vernon McGee said on this. He said, and I quote, This church needs repentance more than all the others. And the message of repentance is for the contemporary church, but you will not be popular if you preach that. I can assure you, it is not too late even for those in this church to turn to Christ. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, in verse 20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Of course, eating with somebody in that culture, um, they, they, they symbolically understood that you were becoming one with that person. So Jesus is saying, look, I want, you to, I want you to open the door so I can come in and dine with you. In other words, I can have fellowship with you. I can become one with you. I can save you. Don't make the mistake of using verse 20 to preach the gospel to people. A lot of Christians, when they present the gospel, they use verse 20 of Revelation 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. You want to go to heaven? Just open your heart to Jesus. Just open your heart to Jesus. He's knocking. Open your heart. He'll come in. He'll save you. He'll give you peace. He'll do this. He'll do that. But if you preach the gospel using verse 20, you're going to give people the wrong impression. Or you're not going to give the whole story. Because as we have pointed out many times before, you can't divorce verse 19 from verse 20. Those who I love, I chasten and rebuke. Therefore, be zealous and what? Repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Folks, today, either preachers are not making it clear or people don't want to really come to terms with it. But a lot of people today are under the mistaken impression that you can have Jesus and still hold on to your sin. There are some churches that are actually fostering this. There are churches, a big one that I'll, I'll, I won't name, that baptizes people living together. Yeah, they baptize people living together. Because the people, you know, they claim, well, we've accepted Christ, but, you know, we just right now, we just feel like, you know, this is where we should be. And Oh, okay, well, we'll baptize you anyways. And you know what? I'm convinced if a person wants to hold on to their sin, even if they think they've come to Christ, they haven't come to Christ. You know, the rich young ruler was not what we would call an overt sinner. He was moral. He was rich. He was a leader of a synagogue, of a synagogue, so he was a religious person. Yet when he comes to Jesus and wants to know what he must do to have eternal life, Jesus basically says, well, the money, your money is on the throne of your heart. You need to get rid of it. And then come follow me. And you'll have riches in heaven. And he went away sorrowful because he had much wealth and didn't want to let go of it. As you read the account in Mark's gospel, it says when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looked at him and loved him. But he couldn't save him unless this man repented, gave up what was on the throne of his heart. The same is true today. I mean, you know, people want God, but they want God on their terms. They want God, but they don't want to give up sin. And some churches, for whatever reason I can't figure out, are accommodating that. Basically saying, well, you know what? You just believe. 
And sometime down the road, we'll let God worry about convicting you of your sin. You know what? I don't think that you can present the gospel that way. I don't think that's the true gospel. To say to somebody, well, you know what? Your sin doesn't matter. Just go ahead and believe in Jesus. That's all. Let God worry about all the details later. Well, the devil believes in Jesus. He's not going to heaven. And so we have to be careful how we present the gospel. And and there are people today that will say, you know, well, you know, I really believe that we need to preach like Jesus preached. You didn't hear Jesus with all that talk of judgment. Read the gospels again. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else. He talked about it more than heaven and more than love. He said things like this in Luke uh, 13, verses 3 and 5. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus preached repentance, that it was absolutely essential for a person to be saved. And yet that preaching is not around today for the most part. You don't hear a lot of the, this kind of preaching on TV and from pulpits across the country. This, you know, The modern way to evangelize the lost is to basically kind of just let them feel comfortable, sneak up on them when they're not looking, and somehow hit them with the gospel, which basically is you know, just believe in Jesus and, and, and that's all you need to do. And, and don't worry about the sin. Don't worry. He'll take care of all that down the road. And I, I'm not convinced. You start down the road with Jesus until you take care of the sin. I think that is the beginning of the road, not the end of the road. You can't start down the road of fellowship with Jesus. You can't go the way he's going if you don't first deal with your sin at the point of conversion. Otherwise, you're not converted. But I want you to notice that he says here in verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Notice he says, if anyone opens the door. He's not talking to this church in general anymore. Because this church was too far gone. He's appealing to individuals in the church. Look, your church is a sinking ship. It can't be saved. The liberal apostate church... You're not going to save the liberal apostate church. I'm not saying you can't save individuals out of it. But I don't see the liberal apostate church suddenly becoming evangelical for the most part. So liberalism, what has so poisoned people's thinking with regard to theology and the word of God and salvation and so on, uh, that is not going away. To the church of Philadelphia, the true church in the last days, he said, I'm going to rescue you before the great tribulation comes. To this church, he makes no such promise. They're going into the great tribulation. But... If anyone in this church will come to Christ and repent, he will save them individually. It's interesting. I want you to notice this. This invitation is the narrowest of all that Jesus gave to these seven churches. In Revelation 2, verse 24, he said, Now I say to the rest in Thyatira. Revelation 3, verse 4, You have a few names even in Sardis. Revelation 3.20, he says to Laodicea, if anyone hears my voice. It's kind of interesting because in Matthew, this gospel chapter 13, verse 8, when Jesus was talking about going out and sowing the seeds of the gospel, he, he said in verse 8, but others fell on good ground. Remember the parable of the sower? We've studied that. Some of the seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Listen, some a hundredfold. Some 60 and some what? Some 30, right? 
Did you notice the decreasing yield? I kind of believe we're going to see the yield decreasing the closer we get to the Lord's return. You know, there are some people who are claiming that before the Lord's return, there's going to be a great revival that's going to sweep the entire world. Boy, I'd love to believe that. I pray for that. I'm not saying there won't be pockets of revival in different places. But you know, as I read the scriptures, I don't see that in scripture. I I read things like Luke 18.8, when the Son of Man returns, will he really find faith in the earth? I hear him talking about when the seed of the gospel is sown. You have a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. You have a decreasing yield. Uh, Could it be that the closer we got to the Lord's return, it wouldn't be great revival and a great harvest of souls into the kingdom. It would be apostasy. It would be people turning from the truth. It would be a time of worldwide unprecedented deception where Jesus would even say to the elect, which I believe are the Jews in the tribulation period, that, um, that if I hadn't told you beforehand about this deception, even the elect would be deceived. That's the thing. I think the closer we get to the coming of Christ, we're going to see less and less in the way of revival and a harvesting of souls for the kingdom. You're going to see more and more apostasy. Now, the thing about it is it's going to lead up to the rapture of the church, right? The true church, which will then leave the apostate church on the earth, which will partner with the Antichrist. The apostate Christian church, the Laodicean church, is going to partner with the false prophet and the Antichrist. They're going to become a part of the one world religion. But during that time, the Spirit of God is going to be moving. You're going to see a great move of the Spirit during the tribulation period. Thousands and even millions of people are going to get saved. They're going to be martyred for their faith. There's going to be a revival. There's going to be a great awakening. But it's not going to be before the rapture. I don't believe so. And then finally, in verse 21 and 2, Jesus said to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And once again, Jesus' reference to the overcomer is a reference to to a person who has genuine saving faith. An overcomer is simply somebody who has truly put their faith in Christ. So when you see that word, don't think of works, think of faith. The overcomer, John, 1 John 5, 5, is always the person who has put their true faith in Christ and is a true born-again believer. I want to leave you with this. Again, verse 20, where Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, years ago, there was an English artist named Holman Hunt who attempted to capture this scene on canvas. The painting now hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, very famous painting. He pictured Jesus standing at a door of a neglected cottage, knocking to be let in. I have a picture of this, found it on the web, printed it out. You can come up and look at it afterwards. But one author described it this way. He said, thistles have grown up the front wall and grass covers the entry walk. Vines, weeds, and rusty hinges in the painting convey a sense that nobody cares about the cottage or its residents. But standing at the door of this cottage is the kind King Jesus Christ, holding a lantern from which the painting derives its title, The Light of the World. 
The lantern light casts a warm glow over the front of the rundown home, and with his upraised right hand, Christ is knocking on the door. Well, when he first painted this picture, Holman Hunt invited some of his artist friends over to take a look at it and give their you know, opinion of what he had done. And one of them, looking at the painting very astutely, says, Holman, you made a big mistake here. He said, what do you mean? He said, you left out something very important. He said, what? There's no handle on the door. He said, I did that on purpose. The door is a picture of the human heart. You have to open it from the inside to let Christ in. J. Vernon McGee says, This is the picture of Christ we have in Revelation. He stands at the door and knocks. He will not crash the door, regardless of what some extremists say on this matter of election. The Lord Jesus has moved heaven and hell to get to the door of your heart, but when he gets there, he will stop and knock. You will have to open the door and let him in. Now, folks, even though I believe the proper interpretation is an invitation for unbelievers to open the door of their heart to Jesus, he's knocking to get in, and the correct interpretation is that he's wanting unbelievers to open the door of their heart so he can come in and take his rightful place on the throne of their heart as Lord and Savior. I believe that's the correct interpretation. I'm not saying that we can't look at this verse and also use it in a secondary sense as an illustration of how many Christians' hearts have seemed to cool towards the Lord, who have kind of forsaken him. Oh, maybe not in the sense that they no longer believe in him, but for all practical purposes, their relationship with him is pretty much dead. I like what one author said. He said, How often I have seen Christians whose lives are represented by the neglected cottage in Holman Hunt's famous painting, where the fire of passion once filled the windows with a light of vibrant life, now only the dimness of passivity is evident. Once the pathway was packed firm and the grounds weeded and trimmed for the frequent welcomed visitor, but now the threshold is rarely crossed. And the door that was always ajar in anticipation of the master's fellowship is now shut and locked from the inside against a friend who is now regarded as a stranger, end quote. And if you're here tonight or if someone is listening to my voice on CD or on the radio, let me say this. Jesus Christ loves you, just like he loved this church. And he wants to tell you it's not too late. It is not too late to repent and to let him in, give him the place he once occupied. He's knocking. He wants fellowship. It's never too late, no matter how far you've strayed from the Lord. And as you look back and you go, man, I used to be so close to God. I was so on fire, man. I used to be at church all the time. I was reading my Bible all the time. I was witnessing to people. And I don't know what's happened, but my heart is just so cold now. It doesn't happen all at once, does it? It's a gradual, almost imperceptible drifting away. You start saying once in a while, oh, I'm a little tired. I don't think I'll go to Bible study tonight. It's a nice day today. Uh, we don't have to go to church to worship God. Let's take the family and go out and enjoy nature and have a picnic. Sunday morning, beautiful day. We can, do, we can worship God out there, can't we? We don't have to be in church. 
And there's all kinds of ways you begin to justify why it's okay to do the things that you, you know, or not do the things that you have been doing as a Christian, staying close to the Lord by going to church and fellowshipping with God's people and reading the Word. And you begin to slowly move away until you look back one day and go, how did I get here? How did I get here? I'm feeling so far away from God. My heart is so cold. Everything is dead inside. I can never come back to God. I'm just too far gone. And when people tell me that, you know what I tell them? I say to them, do you think that you are farther from God today as a backslidden Christian than you were from God before you received Christ and were a total unbeliever? And all you had to do to invite Christ into your heart was to just simply say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins and come into my heart and fill me with your presence. Do you think as a child of God now, even though you're backslidden, you can't pray the same prayer? You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.